The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. All right, well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Man, worship was so good, wasn't it? Worship was so good every Sunday, but I, I just enjoyed. Kaylee, thank you. And Kaylee's new to our team. God has gifted you with the ability to lead us in worship. Thank you. It's awesome. Hey, well, welcome. We're so glad you're here. We're in the seventh week of a series called Unusual Suspects. We're about to land the plane over the next few weeks and then jump into a brand new series still in the book of Luke, but I'm excited for today. So if you brought a Bible, Luke chapter five, Luke chapter five is our text today. We're going to put the words on the screen. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We love to give you one in the, in the, uh, at the connect table in the lobby after the service, but if you did bring one, you can turn it on, turn it to Luke chapter five. Now, let me pray for us and we're going to jump right in. Jesus, thank you for today. God, thank you for the ability to gather this morning. God, thank you for the ability uh, as believers to worship freely today, God. God, I pray as we open up the scriptures, Lord, you would speak mightily. The most important words spoken today are the words we read from the pages of scripture. God, the, the scripture today, we confess, is the loudest voice in our church, so let it be heard today. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody in the Colony Theater said... Amen and amen. Hey, about 12 years ago, um, we began to send students to Ireland to share the gospel and work with the church in a city called Cork on the coast in Ireland. Anybody ever been to Ireland before? A beautiful country. This time of year, it's starting to get cold and rainy. But we, uh, we would send students, and we sent students there for probably six or seven years and we went there to help a church, and uh, we, the church wanted us to stand on the street and, and just tell people about Jesus, and a very unique ministry, but it was really cool, and we had conversations with all kinds of people about all kinds of things, about Jesus, about church, uh, about their soul, about their faith or their lack of faith. It was just an incredibly encouraging time of mission here on the streets in court, but there was one girl I remember encountering um, the first year we went to court, and so we would stand, some of us would, we would spread out through the city, but there was this one place, there was a grocery store behind us and a Catholic church in front of us, but there was this courtyard and after school, students would come through the courtyard and we would engage students in a lot of conversations. But there was this one girl who came through the first year. I don't remember her name, but I remember engaging her in conversation and her perspective on the church was all she'd ever known. Her perspective on the church was, was the church building and we were standing in front of a big church building. It was a political structure. Her perspective on the church was um, even that the church manipulates people, especially children. But I remember as we talked to her about Jesus, you, you could just see the expression on her face. There was, there was something that she just wanted to be new and relevant about Jesus. And so she not only came the first year, but the second year we came back, she came back. And then the third year she came back that I know of. She came at least three years in a row and had conversations with us. And you just got this sense that she wanted there to be something new and relevant about Jesus and different than she had always known about religion. Today, I want to preach a message titled Unusual Relevance. Unusual Relevance. There's something about Jesus there's something about Jesus, there's something about Jesus that he says, that he offers us about life that's new and fresh and relevant to every person throughout humanity, regardless of what time you live. I believe this morning Jesus is relevant as he's ever been. Jesus is not old. Jesus is relevant. And regardless of how society changes, his words are still fresh. His words are still new. 
And I believe Jesus can be that for you today. You know, the longer you get around Jesus and church and religion, sometimes you have this longing for something new and fresh. And I want us to see today that Jesus is new and he's fresh. So we're in Luke chapter five today. We're gonna start in verse 33, but let me give you a little background before we jump into the text today. In Luke chapter five, starting in verse 33, Jesus is gonna tell three parables. Jesus loved to tell parables, and oftentimes when he told parables, people didn't understand exactly what he's saying. But in Luke chapter five, verse 33, Jesus is gonna tell three parables, a parable about wedding guests and the groom. He's gonna tell a parable about new garments and old garments. He's gonna tell a parable about new new wine and new wine skins. Now this passage has been incredibly difficult to interpret throughout the centuries, but almost universally, unanimously, this passage has always been interpreted the same. And the interpretation, the traditional explanation of this passage is that Jesus is starting something new. He's, he's starting something fresh. And what he's starting is, is something based on grace and it's based on truth. And the new movement that Jesus is starting here, the traditional explanation of this passage, is that this new movement doesn't match up with Judaism. In particular, the, the religiosity of how the law was treated. And so Jesus is gonna use three parables this morning to describe this new thing that he's doing, this new message that he's bringing. And so I, I try to make it very simple this morning and I've got three points for us. And so as I come to those points, you can write them down. And I just want to give you the first point before I even read the scripture this morning. So if you've got something to write with, go ahead and write it down. And the first point is this. I'm going to give you the point before I even read the passage this morning. The first point is this. Jesus is so fresh and so relevant like a good party. Now that's a good intro into the passage this morning, all right? Luke chapter five, verse 33. This is what the scripture says. I haven't preached in three weeks. I don't know if you can tell, I'm so excited. I'm, I'm excited to jump into the passage. I'm talking really fast this morning. John chapter five, I'm sorry, Luke chapter five. I had too much coffee this morning. <laughs> verse 33, and the scripture said, and they said to him. Now, now if you were here last week, Josh uh, talked about the calling of Levi. Now it's important. I'm going to come to that in just a moment because it gives us the context for what's happening here in Luke chapter five. And they said to Jesus, who is the they? Well, the they are, according to the other gospels who recount this account in, um, in the scriptures, the they here are the disciples of John. They're also the disciples of the Pharisees. And so the disciples of John, the disciples of Pharisees have been outside this feast and this banquet that Levi, whom Josh preached about last week, they've been observing everything that has been going on. And they said to Jesus, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, talking to Jesus, go on eating and drinking. Now, if you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast, but we need to remember what happened in the verses previous to this. Remember, Jesus is initiating his ministry. He's calling people out, and we're getting a glimpse of the types of people that Jesus is drawing to himself and calling into ministry. And one of those people in the verses preceding this passage today was a guy named Levi. He was a tax collector. He's the vilest of all society. And Jesus has gone to the tax collector, and he's invited Levi to follow him. And so Levi follows Jesus. Levi follows Jesus and he's so excited about following Jesus that he goes home and he invites Jesus and his disciples to come to his home. And Levi hosts this party. But not only does he invite Jesus and the disciples, he invites all of his vile tax collector friends. 
And so he's having this feast and he's having this banquet and Jesus and his disciples are there and they're feasting and they're eating and they're drinking. Don't you get this picture of this joyous occasion? Don't you get this picture of, of this moment of, of satisfaction at this party? But you know what? There's always a party pooper, isn't there? There's always a party pooper. And the party pooper in this passage here, the party pooper are John's disciples. The party poopers are the disciples of the Pharisees. And so the, the context here is that the Pharisees are already offended at Jesus. They're offended that, that Jesus has invited this vile person in society to follow. They're, they're sort of ticked off by Jesus because he's called Matthew to follow him. Matthew is definitely not an upholder of the law as they are. And now John's disciples begin to pile on Jesus as well. And so they ask Jesus, Jesus, why do your disciples eat and drink while we fast and pray? Now listen just for a moment. Jesus is not opposed to fasting and praying. You understand that, right? In Matthew chapter four, Jesus peels away for 40 days and he fasts and he prays. Jesus frequently got away to spend time with the father, but Jesus also permitted his disciples to go to banquets and to go to parties. But the Pharisees, they had, a, they had this strict schedule of fasting. If you read the Old Testament, you understand that the Old Testament only commanded one fast. That fast was on the Day of Atonement, according to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29. Not only did they fast on that day, but Leviticus 16, 29 tells us they didn't take a bath on that day. They didn't wear shoes on that day. They didn't have marital sex on the Day of Atonement either. But then the Jews have this one day commanded in scripture to fast. But then on top of that, they began to add all these other fasts to their religious calendar. They thought, and if you read Matthew chapter six, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses their fasting and their almsgiving and their praying that they do in public so other people can see them. They thought the more we fast, the holier we are, the more righteous we are. And so as part of their tradition of fasting, not only do they have fasting on the day of atonement, but according to Luke chapter 18, they've now added fasting on Mondays. They've also added fasting on Thursdays. And so every Monday, every Thursday, the Pharisees would fast, okay? And so it's very likely here in this passage, Levi's throwing a party on one of these days. He's throwing a party on a Monday or he's throwing a party on a Thursday. And so Jesus here is not, he's not discouraging fasting and praying. He taught his disciples to do it. We, it's also worth noting here that, that we don't have any record in the New Testament of Jesus's disciples fasting. Instead, what we see is that Jesus's disciples are spending more time eating and drinking with Jesus. At one point, two chapters from now, in Luke chapter seven, in fact, Jesus and his disciples are accused of being drunks and they're accused of being gluttons. And so John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees, they're, they're confused by all of this. They're, they're, they're curious about it. They're, they're probably a, a little bit miffed at Jesus because he's not working within their religious customs. And Jesus' disciples, they're not just going 
They're not just going with the flow. They're not caught up in the river of tradition. They don't have any set pattern of religious tradition. They've got nothing to grieve yet. John's disciples, if you remember, they're grieving because John has been arrested. Jesus' disciples have nothing to grieve yet. They've only got the Messiah. And the scripture says when you have the Messiah, you have fullness of joy. And so Jesus takes this issue of fasting. He takes this issue of fasting and he tells the first parable in verse 34. He tries to answer their question. Why is it that we fast, Jesus, and your disciples eat and drink? So Jesus is gonna tell three parables to answer their question. The first one is in verse 34. Verse 34 says, and Jesus answered them, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Now, now it may be obvious to you here, but Jesus is gonna associate himself as the bridegroom. The disciples, the people who follow Jesus are the friends of the groom. And then Jesus is gonna make this prophecy that, that my disciples aren't fasting now, but there's gonna be a day when the groom is taken away from them. This is a prophecy of Jesus's own death. If you remember Luke chapter 24, Jesus has died, he's been buried. The two disciples are making their way back home and Jesus catches up with them and they're sad and they're gloomy and they get to the house and Jesus asks them, do you have anything to eat? Likely they had been fasting when they realized it was Jesus with them. They left and they went and met the other disciples who were meeting in a room or an upper room and Jesus walks in the upper room and he says, do you have anything to eat? And they give him a piece of broiled fish. Likely they had been fasting. Jesus is making a prophecy here. When I'm taking away, there will be a time to to grieve and to fast. But when the groom is with you, this is the time to feast. Have you ever been to a wedding with bad food? You ever been to a wedding with bad food? Such a sin, but you know what? It doesn't really matter to me. I've been to a lot of, and thankfully, especially the weddings that I've done here, you've, you've had great food. And so, but, but you know, you, you remember the weddings you've been to that have bad food. Think about it. The little sandwich squares, you know what I'm saying? Like they make one piece of bread into like four sandwiches and it's like pimento cheese. You ever had those before? Pimento cheese squares. What about like those, like the dusted sugar cookies? You ever had those? They're like the cheapest option you could possibly buy for a wedding. You, you can remember, I've been to a wedding that had terrible food. You're like, I got all dressed up for sandwich squares? Where's the honey barbecue baby back ribs? Right? Like, like where, are there any cocktail shrimps in the house? I got all dressed up for sandwich squares? Is this a party or what? You know how it is. When you go to a wedding, you expect there to be a party. You expect there to be a celebration. We celebrate in the presence of the groom and the bride. When they leave for the honeymoon, we'll go back to eating Popeye's chicken biscuits, all right? But when they're with us, we want Chick-fil-A, am I right? What's Jesus saying here? What's Jesus saying? Well, a wedding in these days would have typically lasted seven days. A wedding would have lasted seven days. Jesus here is identifying himself as the groom. The disciples are his friends. Nobody fasts at a wedding celebration. If you're getting married and everybody is fasting at the celebration, you better run to the officiant before he signs the papers because it's not a good indication. Something is not right here. And so the question that Jesus asks them is rhetorical. Everybody knows a wedding is a time for feasting and celebration, not fasting. But John's disciples, 
and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting and Jesus' disciples are eating and drinking. Don't you see the contrast here? So the question is, what do the disciples of Jesus know that the disciples of John and the Pharisees and maybe some of us here today don't know? Well, the Jews fasted. They had one commanded fast on the day of atonement, but then the Jews also fasted. According to Zechariah chapter eight, the Jews also fasted four times a year to commemorate the destruction of the temple by King Nebuchadnezzar in 587 BC. This is a fast that was implemented by the Jews. They would fast four times a year. And so, and so they would remember that the temple was destroyed and their fast, now listen, their fast was an anticipation that God would restore their fortune. Their fast was an anticipation that God would restore their joy. Their fast was an anticipation that God would restore their promises. Now look what Zechariah chapter eight, verse 19 says. Zechariah 8.19 promises that the fast would turn into feast when God restored their fortunes and their promises. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fast of the fourth and the fifth and the seventh and the tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love truth and peace. Throughout the Old Testament, Throughout the Old Testament, God refers to himself as a husband. He refers to himself as a bridegroom and Israel is the bride. And so in the passage we have today, Jesus is making an incredible claim. He's saying, the groom is with you. I am the groom. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. The feasts have now come that the Old Testament prophesied now that Jesus has arrived. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, in other words, the party is in full swing. The time is fulfilled. The exile is over. The bridegroom is at hand. Israel's hope is being realized. Fasting is the anticipation of something to come. It's the anticipation of righteousness and justice and joy. But for Jesus' disciples, they have all of that because it has come with Jesus. And so it makes sense that the disciples aren't fasting here at this feast and at this, at this celebration. It makes sense that they're not fasting. Why? Because the groom is in their presence. And so when God came to earth, when God came to earth, it was, it was in, G, in the form of Jesus, it was a sign that God had heard their prayers. He had acknowledged their fasting and now was the time to thank him to celebrate the fact that he's here, to enjoy his presence. Do you understand that to be a follower of Jesus is to enter into this happy life of joy? Do you understand that? To be a follower of Jesus is to enter into this happy life of joy. It's, it's a wedding party. You don't sit around the wedding and mourn and fast. The people of God had been doing that. They'd been mourning and fasting and waiting and anticipating the day that God would come and he would save them. But now he's here. They had waited for that day. And now Jesus says, that day is finally here. The coming of Jesus would change everything. The coming of Jesus would, would change everything. It's joy to follow Jesus. Why? Because our dirty and our ugly sins, in spite of our dirty and our ugly sins, and the sins that have done, been done to us, by the way, 
Jesus looks at them and he sees a beautiful bride. And what Jesus does, he takes those ugly sins and he redeems those sins and he gives us and leads us into a life of freedom and joy. That's what John the Baptist said. Remember John the Baptist? He, he was the forerunner of Jesus. He was the forerunner of Jesus. When Jesus came, listen to what John the Baptist said in John chapter three, verse 29. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. We are the bride, he is the groom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and now it is complete. Jesus is the bridegroom. We as his followers are his special guest and so time with him is, is characterized in the New Testament. It's this time of great joy celebration and, and life, uh, uh, the life of following Jesus, it's likened, it's likened to this, to this wedding week. Do you understand followers of Jesus? We're, we're not typified by grief. Yes, there are seasons of grief. Yes, we go through seasons of loss. But listen, and, and Ecclesiastes says there is a time for everything. But as Christians, we're not typified by grief. Listen, we're typified by joy. And that joy runs deep into our souls. And when that joy overflows, listen, when that joy overflows, the world sees and the world knows. So let me say this again. Jesus is so fresh and Jesus is so relevant like a good party. Jesus is so fresh and he's so relevant like a good party. Too often we think of, of being a Christian and, and going to church as this, this sort of somber occasion. Like we walk around all day and confess our sins and we fast every day and four times a week and then we go to church and try to make up for all of that. But that's not Jesus's idea of church. That's not Jesus's idea of being a Christian. It's described more like a party than it is like a fast. And Jesus likes to party. <laughs> and so the new life that, that Jesus gives is, is this reason to party. And good parties never get old. Good parties never get old. The point here is that when Jesus comes into our life, his presence when he comes into our church, it brings us joy. Are you experiencing that freedom? Are you experiencing that joy in your life? Are you experiencing that in the life of our church? We should be partying, uh, partying, bartering, partying, partying. We should be having a party. <laughs> we should be having parties all the time. When babies are born, when people move into new apartments, listen, when there's new marriages, when, when, when there's new houses, any reason to party. Why? Because when we have Jesus in our life, everything is a gift. Everything is a gift. And God is meaningful and he's joyous. You know, by the way, one of the best ways to welcome new people into the family of God, people who come every week to our church who, who, who are skeptical about Jesus, or skeptical about the church. One of the best ways to welcome them is, is through a party. <laughs> it's through a party to have parties and invite people to experience the joy and the life that we have together in Jesus. When we gather on Sunday mornings, let me tell you something. Sometimes some of you come in and you look like you're coming to a funeral. Change your perspective. You're coming to a party on Sunday mornings. Yeah. 
So Jesus uses this illustration of a wedding. You like the party, I heard. I, you, when I go to your house, you like the party. I love it. Your house is always a party. It's how it always should be. Jesus uses another illustration here. He talks about the wedding groom and the wedding guests, but now he's gonna use another parable to answer the disciples' question. Why do yours, why do yours, your, yours eat and drink while we fast and pray? Can't you see this, this religiosity? I'm more holy than you because I do X, Y, and Z, but yours seem to always be having a good time. Some of you right now are having a difficulty with this because you think the Christian life should be somber and morose all the time. You need a new perspective. Jesus says life with him is like a party. He's gonna use another illustration here. He says in verse 36, and he told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch will not match the, and the patch from the new will not match the old. Okay, so let me, let me, let me, let me, give, you, let me give you the point and then let me try to explain it, all right? Here's the point, I want you to write it down. Jesus is so fresh and so relevant like a good style. Jesus is so fresh and so relevant, like a good style. Actually, probably our sense of fashion here in LA probably would do this today, but, but, but here's what Jesus means. It's sort of a funny picture here. Sort of a funny picture because why would somebody take a new piece of clothing and rip the sleeve off the new piece of clothing to patch an old garment who has a hole in it. Why would somebody do that? Even if you did, Jesus says, you cannot patch an old garment with a new cloth. The new cloth is unshrunk. That's what the other gospel accounts say here. The, the cotton is unshrunk. The new cloth is unshrunk. When you wash it, it will shrink. So if you patch it over an old garment, when the, when the new cloth is washed, it will shrink and it will further tear the garment. But not only that, not only that, it's just bad style. It's just bad style. Now I know we live in LA and I know you pay attention to style, right? I don't get some styles, quite honestly. I really don't get some styles. Sometimes I see styles, I see people wearing things in LA and I'm like, is it Halloween? <laughs> or am I in West Hollywood? What's going on here? <laughs> Have you ever seen people blend styles together? Have you ever seen them? Maybe you've tried to do this before. Jesus is talking about blending the new with the old. He's talking about blending styles together. I need to confess to you today, I'm a bit conscious about style. I'm a bit conscious about style. I have a closet just for the shirts that I wear on Sunday morning. I don't wear them during the week and I order those shirts by the time I wore them so I don't wear the same shirt two weeks in a row or the same shirt that I wore three weeks ago. I'm a bit conscious about style. Listen, um, but honestly, sometimes my own style has been confusing, right? Don't judge me today based on my Nikes and my unbuttoned shirt. But listen, sometimes my own style has been confusing. About 15 years ago, I was still seminary fresh, okay? Now, most of you don't understand what that means, but I was still seminary fresh 15 years ago. What that meant was I still had a closet full of, now I'm not judging any of you guys, especially you, John, but I'm not judging any of you guys. I still had a closet full of khaki pants, okay? I did. Now look, 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 look. But then I took this job at one of the best churches in America and I wanted to be relevant, okay? 
I'm still a little bit seminary. I've got a closet full of khaki pants, but I still want it to be a little bit relevant. So I went to the barber and I said, I want you to cut my hair in the style of a faux hawk, okay? Now look, look, my wife said to me at the time, baby, I love you. But you're gonna regret this style at some point in the future. (laughs) She's right. I've tried to purge my social media accounts of all of the remaining pictures of my faux hawk days. But every now and then, you know, Facebook has this friendiversary thing. And every now and then I have a friend who will repost, hey, friends, and, and, and it just reminds me of these contrasting style. And it's a bit embarrassing, quite honestly. But Jesus isn't like that. His style His message, his kingdom is always new, is always fresh, is always relevant. But here's what we try to do. We get around Jesus for a while. We get around church for a while. And for various reasons, we start to think, you know what? Jesus really could use a makeover. Jesus really could use a makeover. That that old Belief, you know that old belief, that old belief, that old belief is sort of out of date. We need to patch it up with a new, more relevant belief. You know, you know that old, that old Bible, that, that old Bible is kind, of, is kind of a dated style, you know? It's kind of a dated style. We need to dress it up a little bit and reinterpret it. You understand the, the, those truths about heaven and hell and money and sexuality, it really doesn't fit with today's style. So we need to take those old styles and give them to the thrift store and buy something new. But listen to me, church. I'm here to tell you today, Jesus and other styles do not mix. They're contrasting. They don't match. They don't match. And so when we try to patch Jesus with other religious beliefs and other cultural preferences, what happens is this term known as syncretism. Now let me try to explain what's happening here. You can't patch the gospel onto other beliefs, whether it's religious beliefs or cultural preferences. Why? Because Jesus' style stands alone. Jesus's style stands alone. And don't be offended, but you need to hear it today. Jesus doesn't need my artistic touch. He doesn't need your additional splashes of favor and progress and religion. The gospel stands alone. One author and pastor describes this idea of syncretism this way. He says, syncretism simply baptizes unscriptural beliefs in the name of limp-wristed relevance, social progress, being nice, and making a good, non-judgmental impression. Syncretism inevitably dissolves into a universalism in which God loves everyone and will forgive everyone's sins and take everyone to heaven because he simply lacks the courage to judge anyone. Syncretists believe that the hearts of people aren't that bad, that their actions aren't that sinful. And since people are doing the best they can. We can't expect any sort of radical transformation. And so we should just simply bless them with a sentimental love. Now listen to what he says. Syncretists love their neighbor, but they fail to love God. 
what Jesus is offering today, what Jesus has offered all of humanity is a new life full of joy that's only found in him and not in combination with anything else. You can't take pieces of Jesus and patch him on to other parts of your old life. And so Jesus gives us new clothes. He gives us these perfect robes of righteousness. And the Bible says they make us right with God. They give us great joy. And you don't need other clothes. Listen to how the Bible describes these new clothes. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. Are there some things in your life today? Some ideas and some practices that you just need to let go of because they're incompatible with Jesus? What he gives is better and new and fresh and never gets Oh, let me say it again. Jesus is so fresh and so new, like a good style. Jesus is gonna use one last illustration and parable here in verse 37 to answer their question. Jesus, why is it that your disciples don't do it like our disciples? Jesus uses an illustration of new wine and new wineskins, verse 37, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The new wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wine skins. Let me give you the point and then let me try to explain it because this one's a little more difficult and it's a little more dated. But Jesus is so fresh and Jesus is so relevant like a new wineskin. Jesus is so fresh and so relevant like a new Wineskin. Jesus points out that nobody would take new wine and put it into old wineskins. Let, let, let me explain. There, there were multiple ways to carry wine and, and to make wine, but wineskins were most commonly made from soft, flexible goat skins. They would come from the hides of goats and sheep, and those skins would be sewn together. And the spout of the wineskin, where, where the, the, the wine would come out, was where the neck of those animals used to be. And so when the wine was poured into the fresh wineskin through the neck, and it was full, the neck was taken, and it was tied shut to make the skin airtight. And so over time, over time, juice ferments and that fermenting process produces gas and that gas causes the goat skin to expand. And so a, a, a wine skin could be used several times. It could be used multiple times before it lost its ability to be able to, to stretch. But eventually what happens is that skin will harden. It's going to get brittle and it's going to lose its ability to stretch and to be elastic. Elastic. The result is the old wine skin is no longer suitable for making new wine. If it was used again, Jesus says the wine skin would burst, the wine would spill out, and the skin would be ruined. Both the wine and the wine skin would be destroyed. Now, the illustration is a little bit foreign to us. But to Jesus' hearers, it, it would have been so simple and so obvious. Nobody's foolish to put new wine into old wine skins. Verse 38 says the proper way to make wine is to put new wine into fresh wine skins. 
And so when new wine is put into fresh wine skins, the skins are moldable. They're elastic, they're expandable. And when the wine ferments, both the wine and the skins are preserved. In the last analogy, Jesus uses the illustration of new clothes. Now he says, I am the new wine. The old wine skins, not the, new, not the old wine, the old wine skins are the old way of doing things and relating to God. Now he's come and Jesus says, everything has changed. And the coming of Jesus signals this, this new era, this new epoch, if you will, this changing moment in history and how God related to his people. And what Jesus is saying here, what Jesus is saying here is that, is that God sent Jesus to initiate something new and who he is and what he came to do does not fit within the Judaic restrictions and guidelines that these guys had set up. The same guys who are asking Jesus the questions. It's the same God. Listen, it's the same God, the same Core belief, salvation comes by grace through faith, which results in loving God and loving others. But now how that looks and how that's applied is completely and entirely different. And the shift that came with Jesus is so big. It requires an entirely new wine skin. The Judaic system cannot contain it. Listen, the Judaic system cannot contain it, which is why Jesus started the church, which is why Jesus started the church. But listen, even as the church, even as the church, we have to be careful. We have to be contextual so that we are constantly putting the new wine of Jesus, listen to me, into fresh wine skins. The wine skins are the way that we bring the gospel to the city. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, those wineskins, they'll get old, they get brittle, and eventually burst, rendering our efforts useless. And so sadly, what happens in way too many churches is that people get stuck on a certain ways of doing things, and they refuse to adapt, and they refuse to change, and the result is that the church either splits or dies, and the old wineskin burst. You understand this if you've been around church long enough. Churches have fought over any number of things, whether it's right or okay to use musical instruments, whether we should sing a cappella, whether the carpet should be red or it should be stained concrete, whether we should have a platform or a cross on the platform, whether we use lights or video or smoke. Lots of times people pick a church or they leave a church, whether the service is boring or whether the pastor went too long. All right. Don't judge me today. All right. And, and all that stuff, listen, all that stuff is, it's just wineskins. It's just wineskins. And Jesus is not calling his disciples into the same wineskin that had formerly been used, the same discipleship and outreach wineskins that the Pharisees were using to do what Jesus did. We're constantly pressing into the same timeless gospel, into new and relevant wineskins. That's important to us. I'm, I'm talking about Story City Church. That's important to us. Stylistically, we sing modern music. Stylistically, we sing modern music. If you've ever come and you've been to another church, and maybe even another church in our city, and you wonder, why is it that we don't do the lasers and Disneyland and everything else here? We have a value on excellence, 
But let me tell you why we do what we do here. Because in doing the work of the missionary, trying to contextualize the gospel, you know what we heard in Burbank? We heard people say, I work in production. Every day I create things that are fake and I know are not real. I just want something authentic. So we have an excellence, a value on excellence, but we don't overproduce. Style is simply a wineskin. We have a relational wineskin at Story City Church. We have a relational wineskin. There's a reason why we place such a high value on welcoming people here. There's a reason why we welcome people who are here for the first time every single week. Listen, I don't know if this is you, but some of you never think about people who are here for the first time. You never think about people who are here for the first time. We think about people who are here for the first time from the time they get out of the car to the greeting, to their seat, to back to the parking lot. You why, why do you spend so much time thinking about who's here for the first time? What about all of us who have already been here? Let me tell you why. Because in doing the work of a missionary and contextualizing the gospel, you know what we heard over and over and over. Tyler and I sat with people for six months and over. You know what we heard over and over and over. The city is lonely. I cannot find community. We have a relational wineskin at Story City Church because we want to contextually offer the gospel and we go above and beyond to make people feel welcome. But it's just a wineskin. It's just a wineskin. And I want to say to you, we will... We will always be doing this. We will always be asking these questions. You'll never see us get to a place, hopefully. You'll never see us get to a place where you're like, well, here we are. We just got big and bloated and we know what we're doing and we're just going to do it. Why? Because we're always gonna be asking, is the new wine of Jesus being put in new wine skins that are contextual and just as relevant as Jesus himself? Can I just say to you, I'm grateful for a church that appreciates that value. Now this message probably would would probably sting a little more in some other parts of the country, sting a little more to churches who are 40, 50, 80, 100 years old. I just want to affirm Story City Church is a place that embraces these values and I'm grateful for that. But can I just give a warning before I close? People also, people also can become old wineskins in churches. They never want to change. They want to do it the way we've always done it. They resist change. And when we resist resist the contextualizing of the gospel with new wineskins, we will die. Don't become an old, brittle wineskin. Jesus is so fresh. Jesus is so relevant. And I wanna ask you today, have you tasted him? In a way, Jesus is sort of, he's, he's, he's sort of offering this veiled invitation to the Pharisees and the disciples of John to try the new wine. And Jesus says today, a full cup of wine is on the table and you are invited to taste it. Jesus has brought the kingdom of God and that invitation to participate is open to everyone. Let me hear you, I want you to hear me say this. The invitation is open to everyone. Jesus opened it to the vilest of the vile in Levi. Today, we can do nothing but the same. The invitation is open to tax collectors, sinners, Greeks, 
Jews, accountants, consultants. <laughs> it's open to, to prostitutes, atheists, agnostic. We're all invited to participate. So Jesus is not only giving the invitation to the Pharisees and the disciples of John, but he's also giving the invitation to you. You bow your heads, close your eyes for a moment. As we close, we're gonna sing one more song. Jesus knows that people generally, generally remain in, in their traditions. People generally are not comfortable trying something new. Sometimes people are so entrenched in former ways that they won't even taste something new. But I wanna ask you today, will you come and see? Will you taste what Jesus is offering today? Jesus is so relevant. He's so fresh. Will you come and taste today? Nothing magical or mystical about it. Maybe you've never trusted your life to Jesus today. I'm gonna give you the invitation to do so. The same invitation Jesus is extending to the disciples of John, the disciples of the Pharisees. If you would simply come and acknowledge your sin before Jesus, acknowledge that he is the groom who sees your sin and in spite of it, he welcomes you in. He sees you as the potential of being a beautiful bride. And what he does with that sin is he takes it and he redeems that ugly sin and he leads us into a life of joy and fullness. And he's offering that to you today. Have you ever trusted your life to Jesus? There's nothing magical or mystical. If you've never trusted your life to Jesus, I just wanna encourage you right now in your seat. Just do some business with the Lord. Acknowledge before God your sin. You trust that Jesus has forgiven your sin on the cross. Ask him to come and to save you today. Commit to turning from your sin and walking with Jesus the rest of the days of your life. Jesus, I pray this morning for people seated in this auditorium, those who have never come to see and to taste. God, I pray today would be the day they experience you for the first time. Full experience of joy and satisfaction today. Lord, I pray for those who have been around church for a long time, God, those who know you. God, I pray that we would press forward in our city the perspective, Lord, to continually offer the new wine of Jesus and fresh wine skins, Lord. If he will become everything you want them to be, may we be that church. In Jesus' name, amen.